the words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5 and verse 5, the fifth verse in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We come to these most solemn words as a part of uh, our consideration of the teaching of this uh, early portion in this fifth chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, Here we uh, have found that the apostle tells us that we must no longer live the kind of life we were living before. There are certain things from which the Christian man, the Christian believer, is to separate himself or herself once and forever. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know. And then comes this alarming statement. Now, we've divided up this matter in this way, that we have considered what we are not to do. We have then considered positively what we are to do as Christians. We've gone over the things that we are to leave behind us once and forever. We're not even to talk about them, not to hint at them, not to play with them even in the imagination. We're to have nothing to do with them. And then we've considered positively, I say, well, the kind of conversation particularly that we are to indulge in and how we are to use our money, speaking generally. And then we came to the third matter, which was this. Why? Why are we called upon thus to forsake certain things and renounce them forever and to do certain other things? And we are in process of considering the reasons. The apostle says that we are saints. We are saints. We are people set set apart by God. We are holy people. You can't be a Christian without being a saint. So the man who says, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not much of a saint, you know, is a man who's denying and contradicting himself. Every Christian is called to be a saint. The very genius of Protestantism is to reject those artificial and false distinctions that ever have characterized the Catholic approach to truth. That's quite unscriptural. It's not New Testament. That's men. That's to make it easier for us. There are these people who take up the Christian life as a vocation, and they become monks and so on, and they are canonized and made saints, some of them. But then there's the ordinary Christian, and he prays to the saints. He believes in supererogation. Some men have so lived the Christian life that they've not only satisfied God for themselves, they've got an overplus, and you pray to them and ask them to give you a little of their supererogation. That's all unscriptural. We are all saints, set apart by God, a people for his own peculiar possession. We are holy people. That's the meaning of the word saint. Like the vessels that were set apart in the tabernacle in the temple of old, they were called holy vessels, holiness unto the Lord. 
was written upon them. And so this is the position of all of us who claim to be Christians. And then he goes on to say, as we saw, that this kind of old conduct therefore isn't becoming. It doesn't fit in with, doesn't match, doesn't suit, not convenient with the life of people who thus have been made saints and holy ones. And then we saw also how he makes this point that covetousness in particular is a form of idolatry. And any form of idolatry is the greatest conceivable insult to God. If we are making any idols in our hearts, it doesn't matter what it is, not only money, anything, anything that we bow down before it in worship, anything that absorbs our interest and attention, well, that's an idol. That's something which we are worshipping. We are giving it the first place in our lives. We're making it central. That's idolatry. And there is nothing more abominable in the sight of God than idolatry. Very well. There are some of his reasons. And now we come to this further reason. The apostle just can't leave it at that. Uh, he shows how utterly incompatible such conduct is. How unthinkable it ought to be, therefore. But he must go a step further. And he introduces this most solemn warning, this alarming pronouncement that we are looking at together this morning. This ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance, any place at all, in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Very well, here is a warning then that we've got to face. We've got to take scripture as it is. The apostle felt it necessary to administer this severe warning to these Ephesian Christians. And therefore it is necessary as a warning to Christians in all ages and in all places, everywhere. Let's, let's look then briefly at what he has to say. We cannot but notice, first of all, the way in which he presents this warning. No, this ye know, he says. You know this. What he means is that this is something beyond any doubt, beyond any peradventure, beyond any disputation. This, he says, is something that is self-evident. He's saying, in effect, that really you can't be a Christian without knowing this. It's something that is so perfectly obvious. It should be something that needs no demonstration at all for any person who is truly Christian. This, he says, you know. You must know it. How can you be a Christian at all without knowing this? How can you have learned Christ in any real sense without being aware of this at once? He says you need no instruction about it, and yet though he says that, he does remind them of it. Very well then, I say, this comes to us as a question. Do we all know this? Are we all perfectly clear about this? Is this that is something that needs no demonstration or explication to the modern Christian? Well, I can but answer by saying this. That though the apostle says here, as he says in many other places, that this is something that ought to be self-evident. You can't read his epistles, nor indeed any of the writings of the New Testament, 
without being struck by the fact that the writers are constantly reminding people of this and doing so in a most solemn manner. In other words, the position must be this, that there are so many of us who ought to know these things but who don't know them. It ought to be self-evident, but it isn't always self-evident. And that is why we have to go into these things in detail. We can't skip over them and take them for granted and say, well, of course, we do know that. The question is, I said, do we know it? Now, why, why is there this terrible possibility of our, as it were, knowing it theoretically and yet not truly knowing it and understanding it and grasping it? Haven't you often been surprised at this? People are surprised. People come to me sometimes and say, but uh, fancy having to preach on that to Christian people. Well, my only answer is the apostles did that. And if it was necessary then, it is necessary now. And it's not difficult to know why it is always necessary. Here's one reason. We all tend to be so subjective in our approach to this question of salvation and of redemption. I mean by that that we always start with ourselves and so often we end with ourselves. We want something and especially we want happiness. And we regard the gospel as something that is just designed to help us with our problem of seeking for happiness. And it's because we start with ourselves in that way and with this question of happiness and never look at the whole position objectively that we tend to get into this difficulty. We want something, and we dictate what the something is. It's purely subjective. And the result is, I say, that we forget this other aspect that is infinitely more important, which is our relationship to God and our standing in his most holy sight. It's the danger, then, of being purely subjective in our approach. And then another reason is this. We are all, of course, such experts at rationalizing our own sins and failures. Oh, we recognize a thing in somebody else and we condemn it. But somehow or another, when we do the same thing, well, there's an explanation and it can be put so easily and we're perfectly satisfied. We're all experts at that process which is called rationalizing our own sins and misdeeds and failures. We're all on very good terms with ourselves. We don't like to be made miserable. We don't like condemnation. And therefore we are experts, I say, at deducing reasons and arguments and explanations. The thing really wasn't quite what it appeared to be. And so we end on good terms with ourselves. Once you go along that subjective road, it's astounding how brilliant you can become at protecting yourself and your own interests. The apostle says, you remember, in writing to the Romans in the second chapter, we either excuse or accuse. In this respect, we excuse ourselves, we accuse others about the self-same things. Very well, there's a second reason, but of course at the back of it all is the subtlety of the devil who can come to us as a friend, indeed as an angel of light and can so easily persuade us because we want to be persuaded that what we have first of all accused ourselves for as a sin is not really a sin at all. It was just something natural. It was all right. We were being over punctilious. We'd become hypersensitive in our consciences. 
We developed a kind of morbid scrupulosity. And so he comes and he puts it so plausibly and we, I say, want to be convinced of this. We want to be right with ourselves. And so the devil comes and twists. And thus God's people are blinded to what they're doing. And they get into a state in which it is necessary that the apostles should address them in the terms of this verse that we are looking at together this morning. Very well, there is a need for us constantly to look at these great statements of the Scripture about the ultimate object of Christianity. What is the ultimate object of this Christian message, this Christian faith? And there can be only one answer to that. It is to make us holy, not to make us happy. Happiness is a byproduct in Christianity. It's not the central thing. Now, we can never emphasize that too much. It is the differentiating point as between Christianity and the cult. Let me use the technical term. It is the differentia of the Christian faith. Here, the first thing is holiness. In all the others, it's happiness. You examine them. And you'll find that they're always ministering to your happiness. They're not concerned about your holiness. They want you to get rid of this, that, or the other. Yes, but do they want you to get rid of sin? Many of them don't even recognize the category of sin at all. But here, the first thing, the big thing, the central thing, is that we be made holy. And that, you see, is the great argument of the 12th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, isn't it? It's because the Lord loves us that he chastens us and makes us unhappy for the time being. Why? Well, he's concerned about our holiness. He wants us to be perfect. He's preparing us for himself and his own life. Therefore, holiness must be of necessity the first thing and the most important thing. So we can never too frequently look at statements uh, such as this that's engaging our attention at this moment. The thing we need to do increasingly, in other words, is to look at God and at his view and of and his attitude towards sin and evil. Let's forget ourselves for the time being. We start with God and we've come into his presence. We're looking at him. What matters is what he thinks and says about evil and sin and wrongdoing and life and living. Not what I feel or my comfort or what anybody else says to me. It's God. Now then, this verse helps us to do that very thing. And let's look at it therefore in this way. Let us observe the frequency with which this statement that is made in our text this morning is made in the scriptures. It's quite astonishing. Take, for instance, that example of it there in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 9 and following, which we read just now. Know ye not, says the apostle, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. There it is, in its most solemn form once more. And you remember how 
even in that great 15th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, he says it again, verses 33-34, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then there's a mighty dissertation on this subject, you remember, in the second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 6. Listen to this. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Answer that. What communion hath light with darkness? Who can tell me? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? There are the questions. And the questions are put, of course, to show that there is no fellowship, no agreement at all. The things are eternal incompatibilities and can never be brought together. There is no mean between these two opposites, if I may quote Aristotle. These things are eternal antitheses. There can never be any gray in the realm where God reigns. It's one or the other, it's black or white, and they never can be mixed. And then you remember the Apostle John, he teaches precisely the same thing. Listen to him in his first epistle in the first chapter saying, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If any man say, he says in the second chapter, in the fourth verse, if any man say, I know him, and keep not his commandments, you remember what he says about him? He is a liar. There's nothing else to say about him. He's just a barefaced liar. And the truth is not in him. He's a stranger to it. And then you go on, you see, to the very last book of the Bible, as if to remind us just at the very end we are so prone to forget all this, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it the holy city anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they only which are written in the Lamb's book of life, and take the very last chapter of the Bible, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city, for without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Oh, this is an eternal distinction without. There they are, these people that he's talking about that have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. They're without and outside eternally and there they remain. They have no entrance into this holy city. Why, our Lord himself had said it all in the Sermon on the Mount, hadn't he? He said, not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he 
that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. My dear friends, this is Christianity. This is New Testament Christianity. And there it is so plain and clear. You see, we're not thinking about our own happiness or subjective feelings, are we? Here is a great, objective, eternal statement. There is a city to enter. We want to enter the city, do we? Very well, then remember, it's a holy city. And that the entrance to that city is controlled by this category of holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and nobody else. Well, now then, there you are. There are the scriptures. You see the abundance of the quotations, and I'm merely selecting some in passing. Now then, the first question that uh, confronts us is this. What exactly then does this statement mean? Well, it means this. The apostle is asserting that anyone whose habitual conduct is this hath no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying that a man whose whole life is characterized by that kind of behavior hath no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, it means that for this reason. It cannot mean that any man who falls into any one of these sins is eternally excluded from the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that, thank God. But it does mean that if this is the characteristic of a man's life, if that is his way of living, if that is his walk, if that is his atmosphere, if, if that is the realm in which he is happy and enjoys himself and gets what he seeks for, well then he has no inheritance at all in the kingdom of God and of Christ. I say thank God that that is the position. We've got illustrations in the New Testament itself of Christian people temporarily falling into sin. But that doesn't become their habitat, as it were. They don't go back and live there and dwell there. They don't continue in that. I say this because the truth compels me to say it. I know that there are people who at once will clutch onto that perhaps and use it and rest it, as Peter says, to their own destruction. Well, let me try and make the distinction clear to them. A persistence in that, a continuance in that, a settling down in that, a reversion to that, means that you're not inside the kingdom. That's the statement, as it is the explanation of all these other statements. Men and women whose whole demeanor, whose life is characterized by these things, are not in the kingdom of God. They have no inheritance there at all. Now, why is this true? And why is this true of necessity? Why does the apostle say this he know? This is really so perfectly plain. Well, here he uses a very interesting expression. He says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You will find that the learned commentators spend most of their time in dealing with this verse on that particular phrase. And what they're concerned about is this. They say that what the apostle actually wrote was, hath no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. From which many of them deduce, and probably rightly, that one of the things the apostle had in his mind here was to say that Christ is God. 
the kingdom of Christ and God. Not the kingdom of Christ and of God, but the kingdom of Christ and God, of the Christ who is God. And as I say, that is a perfectly legitimate thing to say. And yet I somehow cannot but feel that the apostle wasn't primarily concerned to say that, though that is true. And he says similar things elsewhere. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is God the second person. But I rather feel that the apostle was here saying, the kingdom of Christ and of God, in order that he may emphasize this. That this kingdom which Christ has opened to us and for us, and which therefore can be rightly called the kingdom of Christ, is also the kingdom of God. And because it is the kingdom of God, we say this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And that is the kingdom about which we are speaking. The kingdom in which God is the center and the soul in which God is everything, and everything in it must be like God, and God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see, we are without any excuse, aren't we? Didn't we find in reading those psalms that we read at the beginning that it was known to the Old Testament saints, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill, he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart, and backbiteth not with his tongue, etc. He is the man who is going to be there, and then again in the 24th Psalm, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? That was the thing that was concerning these men. And he answers, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. My dear friends, what's it matter whether we are happy or miserable in a sense? What does anything matter but this? Do we want to stand in the presence of the Lord? Do we want to ascend that holy hill? Do we want an entrance into that holy eternal city of God? Do we want to spend our eternity? That's the question. And the first consideration, therefore, is this holiness. Be ye holy, says God, for I am holy. The thing is so obvious, this you know. Our God is a consuming fire. God is light, and in him dwelleth no darkness at all. These are the phrases. And then you look at our Lord himself. And you see that he was holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separate from sinners. He was such that he could challenge his accusers at the end and say, Who can bring a charge against me? He says, That evil one cometh and findeth nothing in me. He stands out in his holiness, in his sanctity, in his eternal purity. But here there arises a very subtle danger, and I have no doubt the Apostle was dealing with this when he wrote the very words we are considering, and it is a very subtle danger today. There are people who argue like this. They say, but wait a minute, aren't you this morning preaching the law to us? And you are to be a minister of grace. Are you not just preaching pure law? 
You're reminding us of the being and the character of God. And God has expressed it in the Ten Commandments and in his moral law. Oh, you're not just putting us back into the law. And you're excluding every one of us from the kingdom of God. You see, surely you're forgetting the gospel. And you see, what they mean by that is this. And this is often how it's put. They say, yes, that was the original kingdom and the original law that God held before mankind. But now, the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And we are confronted by something quite new. We are no longer confronting the law. All we are asked to do as Christians is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The law made it impossible. There was none righteous, no, not one. God now has brought in another way which makes it easier for us. All we are asked to do this is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. We are no longer confronted by the demands of the law and this tremendous holiness. It's just this one question of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is the most subtle, dangerous heresy that can ever be offered to men and women. And yet it characterizes a great deal of modern evangelism. How then do we answer this question? Well, the answer is perfectly clear in the New Testament itself. Christ is God. And he didn't come into this world to change God's law. He says specifically himself in the Sermon on the Mount that not one jot nor tittle of the law shall pass away, shall pass away until all be fulfilled. He has not come to destroy the law nor the prophets, but to fulfill. And as the apostle reminds us here, the kingdom of Christ is also the kingdom of God. It's the one kingdom. The saints of the Old Testament are in the same kingdom as we are. They were in it before us. We, as Gentiles, have been brought in. We were strangers to the covenants of promise and outside all these things. But we've been brought in. We've been made fellow heirs with them. This division is between the old and the new. And to try to argue that the law has got nothing to do with us is the, is the devil appearing as an angel of light. It is the same eternal standard. In the kingdom of Christ, we are brought face to face with God. And what is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did he come? He came to bring us to God, says the Apostle Peter. He came, says Paul, and gave himself for us, that he might separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He came to make us holy. Or, take the perfect statement of it in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It is the kingdom of Christ and of God and the standard is not lower in the kingdom of Christ than it is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom is one. And holiness is still the one and only standard. So this, I say, is something that is therefore true of necessity. 
The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into this world, I say, to lower the standard or to make it easier, as it were, for us to slip into the kingdom than it was before. That I can go in now in my sins, but saying I believe in Christ. No, no. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth. And remember that goes on to the parable, the picture of the house built on the rock and the house built upon the sand. And he introduces it, you remember, in these words. He says, the man that heareth my commandments and doeth them is like unto a man that built his house upon the rock. The man that heard his commandments and didn't do them is the man who built his house upon the sand. Very well. That leaves us with a final question, which is this. Someone may say, well now then, I can't reconcile these things in my mind as principles. I don't understand what you're saying theologically. This is the difficulty. People have often felt this difficulty. They say, but surely by putting it, as you're putting it this morning, you really are teaching justification by works again. Are you not saying that it is our life that admits us into that kingdom? Are you not saying that if a man is guilty of these things, he's outside? If he is not guilty, he's inside. Isn't that just going right back to justification by works? Are you not saying, in effect, that a man is justified by his sanctification? That if he's a sanctified man, he's justified. But that if he isn't sanctified, he's not justified and he's outside. Now, people are often in trouble about this. They're in trouble in exactly the same way about the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now they say, look at those terrible warnings there. There we are told that if this man who believes, if he goes back, that he's outside. They say, we can't reconcile this justification by faith only and this pure grace of yours with this other emphasis which seems to put it all back upon us and upon our conduct and upon our behavior. Now then, how do we reconcile these things? It's a very important question. We do so by asserting again that God justifies the ungodly. God doesn't justify the godly, he justifies the ungodly. Justification is by faith alone. It was while we were yet enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It was while we were ungodly, while we were sinners. There's no question about that. That's the cardinal doctrine. It's the first great principle. But justification is only one step and an initial step only in a process. And the process includes not only justification, but regeneration and sanctification and ultimate glorification. Justification and forgiveness of sins are not ends in and of themselves, but they are only steps on a way that leads to final perfection. Now that is the whole answer to the problem. We will persist in isolating these things. They are not isolated in the Scriptures. Whom he hath called, them hath he also justified, and whom he hath justified, them hath he also glorified. But of him are he in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's the whole process. And the point is that if you're in it at all, you're in it all. Now then, we can't divorce justification and forgiveness, I say, from the remainder. And the remaining steps 
we're put very clearly before us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. Such, says the apostle having given his terrible list of sins, such were some of you. But ye are washed. You've been washed. But ye are sanctified. You've been set apart. God has moved you from that. He's put you into his own kingdom. He's separated you as a people for himself. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What's it mean? It means this. That God doesn't just justify a man and leave him there. No, no. If God justifies a man, God has brought that man into the process. If you can say that you're justified, I say about you that you've been washed, that you've been sanctified, you've been taken out, you've been removed, you've been put into a new realm and into a new kingdom. You're in this process of God that's leading to your ultimate entire perfection. So, you see, the verse that we're looking at this morning rarely is saying this. If there is no evidence in our lives of this process into which God puts the people whom he justifies, well then, all I can say is that we've not been justified. We are just saying, Lord, Lord, but he'll say to us, I never knew you. Depart from ye, ye that work iniquity. For the argument is that when God justifies a man, he does bring him into this process and these things happen to him. So, the way to approach a verse like this, or the early part of the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, I will put in this form. These verses are put before us in order that we may test ourselves by them. In order that we may apply the test of their statements. We were so ready to say, Lord, Lord, yes, but uh, listen, says Paul, know this, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any part or portion in the kingdom of God. It's a terrible thing, you know. But there have been people in the church who have said, Lord, Lord, but were guilty of these things. Read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And there you'll find there was a man, a member in the church at Corinth, who was guilty of such a terrible sin that it's not even mentioned, he says, amongst the Gentiles. Some of these indescribable foul sins. Here was a man saying, Lord, Lord, and yet guilty of that at the same time. No, no, says Paul. No, no, says the New Testament everywhere. This is not a matter of words. Any man can say, Lord, Lord. If he thinks he'll get him to heaven, he'll say so. Yes, but if he still goes on with his sin, there's no value in it. He is not a justified man. The man who's justified is a man to whom the process has been applied. He is in it. And his whole relationship to sin and evil is a new one. He's been washed. He's been sanctified. He's been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But it's more than a test. And I end with this. Did you realize that these kind of verses are a very part of God's way of sanctifying us? You remember his last prayer? He said, Lord God, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He'd already said to certain people, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
Had you realized that it is through these words that God sanctifies us? It's a part of his method of sanctification. These great warnings, these threatenings, these alarming statements, these are the things that God uses to sanctify us. He applies them to us by the Spirit, you see, in this way. Now I can test, we can all test ourselves at this moment whether we are Christians or not. How do you react to my text this morning? Does it concern you? Does it alarm you? Does it make you feel ashamed of yourself and your life? Do you say it's absolutely right and I'm ever in danger of relapsing into antinomianism? If so, I tell you you're in the kingdom. God has used this verse through the Holy Spirit in order to promote your sanctification. These words come to awaken the true believer. They don't touch the others. The others are just made to feel uncomfortable. They say, that's all wrong. I thought I was justified by faith only. And they put it in such a way as to make you see at once that what they really mean is this. I thought that the gospel said that it didn't matter if I went on sinning, that I was all right if I believed in Christ. They make the blood of Christ a cloak to cover their sins. They make merchandise of the cross. They're balancing, putting themselves right. But the man who is rarely called, the man who's in the kingdom, he says, this is right. It must be right. God is holy. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And these very words are used and employed to further and to deepen and to expedite his sanctification. In other words, I can put it in those great words of the Apostle John in again his first epistle, third chapter, third verse. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Of course, a man may say glibly, yes, I want to go to heaven. I've got this hope in me. You haven't, says John. Here's the test. If you've really got this hope in you, if you're really looking to entering that holy city at the end and to spend your eternity in it, every man that really has this hope in him purifieth himself. Of course he does. He's bound to. Even as he is pure. But the man who's only got his, the hope on his lips and not in his heart, he doesn't purify himself. He goes on living the old life. And the truth about him is, of course, that he has no inheritance at all in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He doesn't belong to it. He says, Lord, Lord. But speech is cheap and easy. The question is, is the hope in our hearts? If it is, we recognize the truth. We say, yes, we do know this. That people who live like that, obviously, cannot have and have not any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There is no contradiction between these statements and the doctrine of free grace and justification by faith only. They establish it. For the God who justifies goes on with the process. And unless we are giving evidence of being in the process and of being perfected by it, There is but one conclusion to draw. We have never been in the kingdom at all. We must go back to the very beginning. We must do the first works. We must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.